Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. We have a great show lined up for you today. We are talking about addiction, but we're talking about it with a twist. Many of us look at addiction and point the finger elsewhere. There's always that certain someone, family member, friend, colleague, somebody over there, out there, outside of self that is addicted to something. But what happens when we look in the mirror and reflect upon the addiction that we as individuals have to materialism, to status, and, you know, I dare say even our devices, the relationship that we have with those things that we hold in our hands and cannot put down. My first guest is a friend of the show. He is a brilliant physician, practitioner, author. I'm so pleased to welcome back Dr. Gabor Mate, who is a renowned speaker and best-selling author. Dr. Gabor Mate is highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics from addiction to mind-body wellness. Rather than offering quick-fix solutions to these complex issues, Dr. Mate weaves together scientific research, case histories, and his own insights and experience to present a broad perspective that enlightens and empowers people to promote their own healing and that of those around them. As an author, Dr. Mate has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, which happens to be one of my favorites, actually, and one that I refer to clients all the time. His works have been published internationally in 20 languages. In addition, Dr. Mate is the co-founder for Compassion for Addiction, a new nonprofit that focuses on addiction. He is also an advisor of Drugs Over Dinner. Welcome, Gabor. Thank you for coming back. It's my pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. 
Oh, a, a real pleasure. Let, let, let's talk about uh, uh, destination addiction because I, I see it in writing. It puts a smile on my face. And yet we are all there. We're in it. I'm sorry, destination addiction? What is that? Well, that, that, this is what I, I, I have been reading a little bit about this. You know, when we get there, addicted to the next thing, addicted to the goal, addicted to uh, being so busy. I understand. So, first of all, can we begin by agreeing on a definition of addiction? Because yes. most, most people, when they think of addiction, they primarily uh, visualize uh, drug users, um, alcoholics perhaps. So an addiction is any, um, it's manifested in any behavior that a person craves, finds temporary pleasure in or relief from. So craving pleasure and relief in the short term suffers long-term negative consequences but doesn't give it up despite the negative consequences. So addiction is anything that you crave, you find pleasure in or relief, experience negative consequences to yourself and others, and you don't give it up despite those negative consequences. So by that definition then, it could be drugs, but of course it also could be any number of other human endeavors or, 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 or behaviors including what you just mentioned. So obviously it could be sex or shopping. You mentioned the gadgets. You said even they could be addictive. I say not even addictive. They're especially addictive. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, certainly uh, uh, work and uh, sex and uh, relationships and, and anything. Now, in terms of what you call destination addiction, um, addiction is always um, always has a purpose. So if you ask my first question to addicts, and I don't care what the target of the addiction is, whether it's behavior or, or drugs, it's not what's wrong with it, but what does it do for you? So now there's always a deep need. So the addiction is not the primary problem. What you find is addiction is always the attempt to solve a problem. So if somebody who knows it, what you call death, uh, I didn't know that phrase, but I know the entity, the experience very well, what you call destination addiction. In fact, there's a there's an advertisement for Air Canada, which is a Canadian airline, which says the question is not where, but where next. In other words, yeah, the next best thing, right? Never good enough where we are. So, if I asked you, Lisa, have you have that, that destination addiction? Do you recognize it in yourself? Of course, I I, rec I recognize it in myself. Therefore, that's what attracts me to working with with addicts. You know, uh, in, and it comes from the form I think of being enough, which is a, a compulsion that drives us as humans. Well, so so let me tell you. Let me ask you then. Not what's wrong with it, but that destination addiction. What does it do for you in the immediate moment? What does it do? Oh, for this is a great question. I think that it is the jet fuel that catalyzes me to continue to grow, to be on my toes, to expand. It works well for me. It is, it is not a destructive force in my life, and yet I can't stop. Well, just a minute. If it's not a, if it's not a destructive force, it's not an addiction. Addiction, by definition, is something that gives you negative consequences and you can't give it up. So, well. so, uh, so, so otherwise, it's not an addiction. Um, addiction... The very word addiction comes from the word slavery. So addiction is something that holds us enslaved, something that's not good for us. So if you've got a good habit, that's not an addiction. But, well, but anything you can't give up already means that you, last, you have no power over it. Well, 
Dr. Mate, let me ask you a question about this, uh, the, a, per, a very personal one, about yeah. your, um, your addiction. Because as I see your addiction that you've shared with the world, uh, where is the downside in it? Which addiction do you mean? Because there are several. <laughs> <laughs> classical music. Well, no, I'm not addicted to classical music. I love classical music. What I was addicted to was the compulsive purchasing of classical music, which is a different thing altogether. Uh, the, the, the compulsive purchasing meant I had to keep going back to the store and get more and more copies of the same thing. And I would lie to my wife and ignore my kids. That's got nothing to do with the love of classical music. I could have loved classical music without being compulsively um, engaged in, in, in the relentless pursuit of it. And I, I could have loved classical music without spending $8,000 one week on, on, on CDs. So we have to make a distinction between the love of the music and the addiction to the compulsive purchase of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do actually very, very well understand what you're describing. And I think this... Same with my work addiction. I could have loved my work. You know, I could have just enjoyed my work and appreciated uh, my work. But that didn't mean that I had to um, ignore my family and and uh, take on way too much and, and uh, stress myself. So the love of something, the passion for something, is not the same as the addiction for something. Now, to, now, now, and, 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 and to come back to your um, destination addiction, um, you can make a case that, as you did, that it helped you and all that, but I would give you a different point of view. And that would be, what is the fear of being in the present moment? Yes, and this is something that uh, many of us are challenged by. And, you know, you talk about the addiction not being a destructive force. Well, if you ask my children or my partners, they may, uh, my partners, plural, that was a slip, partner, I only have one. He's been around for many, many years, and he's not going anywhere. He would say that, there, that, the, that the addiction to the work would A, take me out of the present moment and B, take me away from the family so it was destructive okay, so there you are then yeah so, so, and, 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 and so the, the question then is just to go back to my original inquiry is what does it do for you? like what do you like about it in short term? Oh, it makes me feel euphoric. I mean, I know that I'm getting all those good hormones. You know, I'm getting the dopamine. I'm getting the oxytocin. I'm getting the endorphin rush. I'm getting adrenaline. I'm getting uh, and cortisol and all the things that, that make us um, Jones when, we, when we're getting that thing that we love so Fair much. Fair enough. But then here's the next question. Why is it on God's green earth with all the potential that's available to us? that you need to have an addiction to give you those feel-good hormones and that motivation and that sense of meaning and that sense of purpose. Ah. Why, why is that? And, and why, is the, why isn't the present moment not sufficient? You know, and, and in other words, um, you, you, the, the person with the mind that you're describing with yourself, and I'm certainly the same way, uh, we're, we're, we're actually uncomfortable in the present moment. So when there's, a, when there's stillness, when there isn't a fervent activity, where there isn't the next thing, then who are we? We're people uncomfortable with ourselves. So the addiction is not the primary problem. The addiction is to, designed to solve the problem of discomfort with the self. Yeah. And that 
and that discomfort with, in other words, addictions are always some attempt to resolve a problem. They're not the primary problem. They're the attempted solution. They're not a good solution, but in the moment they are, in the short term. And so the real question is, why are people such as you and I and so many others uncomfortable with themselves in the moment that they have to keep looking to the next one in order to feel alive? That's a real yeah. human problem. Yeah, and, 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 and what is the answer? What, what are we so afraid of with being in the present moment to just exist in, in, in this body, in this time and space, to what is? Are we not wired that way? Is it from a very reptilian place in the brain that we're always in this state of hypervigilance and movement? No, no. Reptilians are quite comfortable with themselves. They can be still <laughs> for a long time. They can be still for a long time, you know. No, it has to do with, uh, have you ever met a, well, it's, it's a bit, bit of a rhetorical question, but for the most part, are newborns uncomfortable with themselves? Are they are they troubled to be in their own skin? Beautiful question to ask before we dance off to a quick break. To learn more about Dr. Gabor Mate's work, please visit www.drgabormate.com, on Twitter at Dr. Mate, and on Facebook, Dr. Gabor Mate. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. Wait, wait, wait. Before we go to that break, I want to mention something really important about perspective and clarity. Seeing the world clearly and crisply makes me happy. Fashion also makes me happy, and looking good makes me feel even better. I've been wearing Warby Parker's Retro Cool Hip Reading Glasses for years to help me see better when I read and write. Check out Warby Parker's online showroom where you can order up your own personal and free home try-on experience of up to five pairs of fashionable frames. That's right. Warby Parker wants you to experience the look, feel, and design of its variety of styles from the comfort of your own home. Recently, I got to experience Warby Parker's simple, free, and convenient home try-on program and found that it was fun and easy to shop for those styles I like. I loved being able to try before I buy. I appreciate the high-quality materials and design integrity of each pair. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the Laurel, Chelsea, and Upton frames. So jump on over to warbyparker.com slash happiness to set yourself up for a hands-on home experience of fun with five pairs of glasses for five days for free to see which ones you like. Then make them your own by buying them online as readers, prescription, or sunglasses. Warby Parker will send you a fresh pair and also makes it easy to coordinate your own doctor's prescriptions. Return your try-on box within five days for free and wait for your new cool and hip shades to arrive. It's that fun, quick, and easy. Order up your own personal in-home eyeglass fashion show today and begin building your eyeglass wardrobe over at warbyparker.com slash happiness. So jump on over to warbyparker.com slash happiness. Now here come those tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. 
please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are taking a curiously different approach to exploring addiction through materialism, status, and the inability to just be. My first guest today is the renowned Dr. Gabor Mate. He is a well-known author. One of my most favorite books of his is In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. His works have been published internationally in more than 20 languages. So, Gabor, prior to the break, we were talking about um, a child being born. And and you so uh, articulately stated that a baby, when he or she is first coming into the world, is perfectly content with the being. That's mostly true. Now, it's also true that infants are already affected by a mother's stresses during pregnancy, so if a mother is extraordinarily stressed during pregnancy, that baby might not be that comfortable with themselves. But for the most part, human beings are comfortable just to be um, and just to react to their needs in the moment. But they don't have to keep escaping the present moment. They're just there. So yeah. something happens to us. And what happens to us is, broadly speaking, what I call trauma. And, and trauma is not necessarily terrible things happening. It could be. And often it is, unfortunately. People get abused and traumatized. And these people are much more prone to be addicted later on to anything, substances or anything else. But trauma could also be just um, a sensitive child in an environment of stress where the parents are depressed or anxious or unavailable emotionally. And that child then almost downloads the parents' discomfort and becomes uncomfortable with themselves. Because for us to feel uncomfortable with that, for us to feel comfortable with ourselves, First, our parents have to be comfortable with themselves. And if that doesn't happen, we develop this discomfort. We develop the sense that we're not enough, that we're not sufficient. And then we have to keep escaping the present moment uh, by either um, trying to get the next thing going or dwelling on the past, but never being in the present. And then, of course, we also develop uh, the sense of insufficiency. That then means we have to go out and become wealthier or own more things or purchase more things or get more loved or get more sexually admired 
or get uh, more praise for um, any number of ways that we try and enhance the insufficient sense of self. And if you want to see a classical and very tragic example of it, all you got to do is look at the current Republican presidential candidate. And um, he is somebody who has such a narrowly limited and, and deep sense of his own um, self and, un, 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 and such a overwhelming sense of his own unworthiness that his grandiosity is a, and, his, and his lying and everything else is a desperate attempt to, to, to uh, compensate for that. And, in, and the problem is that in our culture, people like this are rewarded with power yes. and with power and wealth. So Trump thinks that all this is working for him. In fact, what we're looking at is a human being self-destructing on the world stage, and, every, and almost everybody knows it but him. Yeah, and it, I, and it's all based on childhood trauma. Which um, he's touched upon. I was listening to some of the interviews that were conducted by one of his biographers earlier this week, and yeah. there was a, a few moments in there he, where he was talking about his childhood and being the bad boy that liked to fight and then being separated from the family and sent to boarding school. And there you see a glimmer. I mean, neither of us are, uh, you're not his doctor and I'm not his coach, but you can see the obvious unfold. Oh, yeah. No, you don't have to be a coach or his doctor. You can just see it. And his poor attention span, his grandiosity, his dishonesty, his need to control women. Um, these are all outcomes of childhood trauma. All I'm saying is that 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 early experience, and he, and he hasn't come nearly, he hasn't come near to dealing with this early trauma. I mean, he, 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 he in, in one statement, he very tellingly said that, I don't like to analyze my too much because I don't, like my, I might not like what I might find, you know. Yeah. And there's so much pain in that man, and that's what we're seeing manifested. And um, I'm not trying to drum up sympathy for his political positions or his uh, ways of behavior. I'm saying they all are the source in that discomfort with the self that we've been talking about. And he's just an extreme example, but he's an example who's been highly rewarded by our society. And if he hadn't didn't have the hubris to to take on something that's way beyond him. He would still be a very successful person, and and you know there's all these things that are actually so dysfunctional make him very functional in a culture that's a culture of addiction. In fact, um, there is a book that came out. I think it was last year or the year before, and we've had the author on the show. The book was uh, entitled uh, "The Narcissist Next Door," and the writer um, reviewed many great historical figures, and in fact, talks about narcissism as being an essential quality for leadership. And I'd like to think that we are evolving, that we are not as primitive as all of that. But it does seem to really um, hold what you're saying, that society has rewarded characters like this on the world stage and in, in, in the corporate world. Well, uh, I don't agree with the author. I don't think in, it depends who you want to consider a leader. If you were talking about uh, corporate exploiters or, or military uh, mass murderers, you might need to, or, 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 you know, you, you might need uh, that narcissism. That's true. But there are other leaders like Buddha and Jesus and any number of other other humans. Uh, any number of human beings who are, uh, you know, who, who who provide leadership without that narcissism. And so, so 
the fact that we need that people need to be narcissists to become leaders says much more about the societies of materialism and power and control that we live in rather than about human nature. Oh, I, I agree with you. And it, it is interesting that you say that because it goes back to the theme that if we're unable to fill ourselves from within and in the being, um, then we do it through the doing. And the doing is measured by the, the materialism, you know, the number of zeros on the financial statement. Uh, my ex-husband, who was a very successful real estate developer, um, who lost everything in the recession, and he has a very similar character to Donald Trump, and I, I tell him that hubris and ego are what took him down, he would say that winning is losing, that for his kind of character, the minute he had a win, he was already on the downturn because yeah. it, he was already in the fight for the next win. Well, compare that to the heroin addict. It's the same thing. It's the uh, same it, exact thing. Because the heroin addict does the or, – or, or me and my compact disc purchasing. I'd no sooner, <laughs> I, I'd no sooner get one. And I, you'd be, there'd be like a flash second of satisfaction, and then I already have to get the next one, you know. And the same with the heroin addict. That's the whole point about addiction. He says that it doesn't matter what form it takes, the brain circuits that are involved and the emotional dynamics and the, and the emptiness at the core of it. It's the same for any addiction. There's only one universal addiction process, and the targets of it may vary from person to person, but the, but the underlying dynamics and the inner experience is the same doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. And, and this is why I really wanted to talk with you about this theme, because we tend to look at addiction at an arm's distance. You know, the, the, the average person who does who is not an addict or doesn't really have somebody close to them, but or maybe they do, they, they see it as not their problem, when in fact, this addiction cycle is really at the at the root of what is um, troubling a lot of us in contemporary society. And society lives off it because we're, so much of the manufacturing and entertainment industry is based on exciting um, every nerve in our bodies. As Thomas Merton, the spiritual teacher, the monk once said, mm-hmm. you know, that, that all these industries are designed to excite every nerve in the human body to sell us things that we don't need. And, and so that the... Belief is that what you want is what we need, and that we need what we want. But in fact, those needs are secondary needs only because of that emptiness. Uh, if, if we weren't so empty on the inside, there's so many products and so many processes that we would not have any interest in whatsoever. So the culture and the economy is very much grounded in, in, in confusing our wants with our needs and get us addicted, getting us addicted to those false needs. So uh, we live in that culture. So in that culture, then we take the drug addict and we say, you're a particularly bad human being. Well, for God's sakes, the drug addicts are simply more unfortunate people who suffered more trauma, whose pain is deeper, perhaps, and they need that substance to kill the pain. But in every other way, they're like most of the rest of us. Certainly they're like me. And, you know, if we begin to have a conversation about this, where it, it, it enjoins us in, in the um, human experience rather than separates us, 
my hope is that we begin to have more empathy for that drug addict or that alcoholic or that uh, that person whose behavior is so off the charts that they cannot um, tolerate nor experience uh, a more conventional experience of life. You know, I worked for 12 years with um, hardcore drug addicts in, 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 in Vancouver, British Columbia, where there's an area which is North America's most concentrated area of drug use. And all the heroin fiends and cocaine addicts and crystal meth dependent individuals and alcoholics, there was absolutely nothing in them that I didn't recognize in myself. The only difference was um, I was a middle-class, well-educated physician. Um, my habits were respectable, but they were, but they were quite destructive to myself and to my family. And the big difference was I had not been traumatized to the degree that they had been. That was the only difference. But, it, but in terms of the actual dynamics and their personalities... Boy, every time I went to work, it was like looking to a thousand mirrors. And people don't want to recognize that, so people that are in denial of that will then judge the addict and, and, and uh, ostracize them. But people who are willing to be honest with themselves will recognize that it's just a continuum, and we're all, yeah. most of us are on it. Maybe not everybody, but most of us. Most of us are uh, bowls with holes, and and uh, what we attempt to plug the hole up with <laughs> varies from person to person. CDs, heroin, high heels, working, you know, sex, gambling, on and on and on. Cars, uh, um, and not to mention the electronic gadgets. That the gadgets. Make. Oh my gosh, that's a that. You know what? We should do a show together on that because we're out of time today. So will you okay. come back and do the gadget the gadget addiction? I would love this. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd enjoy speaking to you about that for sure. So we'll do that. To learn more or t to expand your knowledge about the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, please visit www.drgabormate.com, on Twitter at Dr. Mate, and on Facebook that page is Dr-Gabor-Mate. Thank you again, Gabor. It's always a pleasure to have you. Um, here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about a subject that I really enjoy and our listeners enjoy listening to, and this is about addiction. And many of us think that addiction comes in the form of a bo- of a of a bottle, whether it be alcohol or pills, but there are many, many other forms of addiction, and Dr. Matea often talks about this. Um, and my next guest really is a uh, living history of what it's like to be addicted to money. Haha. <laughs> Turney Duff is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Buy Side, a Wall Street trader's tale of spectacular excess. Turney is now a public speaker, journalist, and television personality. As a B student from Ohio University, he became an unlikely Wall Street trader and soon rose through the ranks. During his career on Wall Street, they were some of the most dramatic in the history of finance. From his early years at Morgan Stanley to the infamous Galleon Group, then co-founded a billion-dollar hedge fund. Turney earned over $10 million in his career and then lost it all, falling prey to the trappings of Wall Street, money, sex, drugs, alcohol, and power. Welcome, Turney. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. This is uh, uh, very serious stuff, and you and you've had a good outcome. You know, probably the worst the worst nightmare of your of your life turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting because that's a common theme. A lot of the worst case scenarios ended up being my biggest gifts. Yeah. Presently, you are now a Wall Street consultant for the Showtime series Billions, which, by the way, is one of my favorite shows. I wait for 10.01 every Sunday night. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's a great show. It is a great show. For those of you who don't know it, I'm going to plug it. It's with Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. And you also are a regular contributor now to uh, CNBC.com and on CNBC as well. Yes. The Filthy Rich Guide. <laughs> yep, that's me. So it's, let's talk it's about- ironic that uh, that I work on a show called Billions. I work on a show called The Filthy Rich Guide, and I'm basically covering the wealth porn beat for CNBC, and I have no money. <laughs> but that's okay. You're laughing. Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, I, I love what you said. Uh, what did you say? The f- financial porn or money porn? Yeah, yeah wealth porn. Wealth porn, yes, wealth porn. Uh huh. Let's that's talk what, a little. That's what they click on, so that's what they tell me to write about. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, I, clearly, I'm going to have to like add, add those to my keywords. <laughs> wealth porn. But you and I talked before we started the show, and uh, we were talking about other forms of addiction. And this is where I think people really need to listen up because uh, money is highly addictive, as are our cellular devices, and we have a hard time putting both down. Talk a little bit about why, why we're so driven by money. Um, You know, it's, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. Um, You know, it's it's very similar to, uh, you know, a drink or a drug because, you know, there's there's a high associated with it. Um, You know, and I'll just give you two two quick, quick anecdotes, um, if you don't mind, Um, because, I'm 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 a cocaine addict and I'm an alcoholic, but I I truly believe that those are really just symptoms of of what's really going on inside of me. So if if I'd never found alcohol or cocaine, it would have manifested its way in in some other form or fashion. Um, but uh, you know, like my 34th birthday party, I hired a band called Naughty by Nature, invited 500 of my closest friends, uh, who's who on Wall Street and out of control and 
everyone, you know, was, you know, wanted a piece of me that night. And it was, it was just, you know, very, very extravagant. And at the end of the night, these four guys who I had flown in from Ohio that I went to college with, um, they, they, they pulled me aside and they're like, Tony, they're like, they're like, who are you? I'm like, what? And they're like, who are you? They're like, we've been standing in the corner all night and everyone's saying, oh my God, do you know Turney? Can you point me out to Turney? Or can you introduce me to Turney? And when they said that, it it, it was better than crack cocaine. It This feeling of being adored. And, and it's something that I'd been just wanting my whole life. And, you know, it dissipated just as fast as crack cocaine. And, 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 and I was on to the next hit. And, you know, fast forward three months later, I'm on my couch in my 2,700 square foot apartment in Tribeca and it's right around bonus time and, and I'm on my phone because it's, you know, before, um, online banking and, and I call the automated number on chase and, and, and I, and I'd punch in my account and all of a sudden the automated voice says, your balance is 1,800,652,000. And I hit repeat, your balance is 1,800,000 repeat. And, and it was just this, I, I, I got a high off of it and, and I just wanted to ke- keep feeling it. So, you know, yes, I identify as an alcoholic and an addict, but, um, you know, it, it, it found its way in all parts of my life, whether it was, it was money or being liked or, you know, food, I mean, you name it. And, and it, it, it was sort of present in my life. You know, I think this really hits the point of being enough, you know, that many of us are looking for external sources to validate that we're really okay, that, you know, that, that, that we mean something. Yes. It, yeah, a thousand percent. And, you know, I had a, uh, a really, really amazing experience when, when I wrote, uh, the buy side, because, uh, you know, for 40 plus years, every decision that I ever made, uh, it was pretty much calculated, you know, how many friends will I gain? How many friends will I lose? Uh, you know, what will be the end result of doing this? And, and when I set off to write the book, you know, at that point I was about a year and a half sober. Um, I, I I said to myself, I said, look, if, if I write this book and try to get people to like me, it's going to fail. And, and so what I need to do is I just need to tell the truth. And, um, you know, so so I wrote this book, not worrying about what people were going to think of me. And you know, I, I had three strikes going in, right? You know, I got a waspy name from a t- small town in Maine. I'm I'm a white dude who made millions of dollars on Wall Street, and I'm a drug addict. So it's like boo-hoo, right? And <laughs> and so so what happened was I, I write this book, and I am brutally honest. And I'm my own biggest critic. And the response I got after after writing it was was overwhelmingly positive. And, and what I learned was, Lisa, I would rather you not like me than for you to like me because I only showed you a certain part of me and, and, and not tricked you to like me. But like, you know, I was had a hand in, in having you like me. So, you know, n- now I'm, you know. I'm not perfect but by any means, but I'm, I'm a little more free um, to, to, to be okay with who I am, and, and, and it's infinitely changed my life. Well, I would guess that after 
going to rehab and throughout your recovery process, which is a continual practice throughout life for somebody who is addicted, that you probably are liking yourself more, which makes it easier for you to just show up and not really care. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, You know, I went to rehab twice and, and, and both times, even when I got back, I was sort of feeling like, well, I was bad and I deserved to be punished. And, you know, I, I wasn't even, you know, treating myself right. Even, even if it was as simple as getting myself a sandwich when I was hungry, you you know, and like when I got back from rehab the second time, I think I slept on the couch for the first three months because I didn't consciously think this, but it was like, I almost felt like I didn't deserve a bed. And, um, while I was active, I was definitely self-sabotaging and self-destructive and, and it was it was as if I did not like myself. Yeah, I think this is a theme that many of us can uh, relate to, whether we are addicted or not. It is, you know, the uh, celebration of the self. Can we accept ourselves? And, and if we are vulnerable, if we show those dark, ugly places that, that we perceive um, are unlovable, we risk, right? We risk not being part of the, the club. Yeah, a thousand percent. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm very grateful that I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Um, and part of the reason, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, perspective, right? I, I would never have become the person I am today with without experiencing everything that I that I've done. But, um, you know, I look around and 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 I kind of feel like we all have something, right? Well, drugs and alcohol brought me to my knees much quicker but but I, I'll run into people who are extremely defensive or you know they they just they can't you know honestly look at themselves and 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 I don't know if they'll ever kind of figure out what that something is for them because they don't have something they you know basically putting a gun in their mouth does that make sense it absolutely makes sense it's the contrast that heightens awareness right we're going to need to go to a break and and then we're going to come back and talk more my guest today is tourney duff the book is the buy side a wall street traders tale of spectacular excess you can learn more about tourney's work and connect with him at www.tourneyduff.com on twitter he is at tourney duff and on facebook tourney duff writes stuff All right, here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Hey, yeah. 
Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are uh, talking about forms of addiction that may be uh, off the radar for many people. Most of us think of drugs and alcohol, but we're talking about the addiction of money. And my guest today is Turney Duff. He is the author of The Buy Side, A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Excess. And Turney, before the break, you were talking about your journey and your gratitude of the process of having gone through addiction, recovery, come out the other side, being able to really write and tell your story, which certainly is cathartic for you, but I think helpful for many of us. Uh, Yeah, I mean, hopefully it is. But, um, you know, I kind of felt like my my only job was tell the truth. and, and, And that's what I did. Well, and we are storytellers by nature, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. that's, that's uh, you know, through the millennium, um, how we communicate, how history is passed down. And I, and I think when we don't get to tell our story, we get sick. Uh, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that, you know, and not, this isn't exactly what, uh, where you were going with it. But, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Maine, moved to the city in 94, and, you know, I, I wasn't exposed to much. And I remember when I was working at Morgan Stanley, a couple of people would be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to my therapist. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, I'm going to see my shrink. And I was like, I, I thought only crazy people went to a shrink. Like, I didn't know, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's all I saw. You know, it was film and TV is, you know, that that's what it was. And, you know, I didn't make my way to a therapist's office until I started struggling with drugs and alcohol. But uh, there's there's definitely a bit of magic um, in just, you know, speaking it out loud to someone else. And and like you said, telling your story, um, I, I think there's a huge benefit to that. Well, I, I don't think it necessarily has to come from seeing a therapist. You know, there have been a lot of no, studies. No, definitely not. Yeah, there have been studies done on 12-step traditions and why they work so well for people. Of and course. It, it, it is that connection with another human being who can relate to your story with kindness and empathy and compassion and without judgment that is medicine. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was kind of getting at the point of just like saying it out loud and, and to other people. But one one of the beauties of of AA is, you know, it's really hard for me to uh, kind of see my own faults, right, um, or take my own advice. Um, but when when I'm around other uh, people like myself, it's like holding up a mirror, and 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 and. and you know, it benefits both of us when 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 I talk to to another addict, whether they're in recovery or whether they're struggling. You know, there's 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 definitely benefit for both people. Well, you know, I, I know that you weren't thinking I was going to the to the AA thing. I was really just talking about you know being seen, heard, and understood because I think that is a a universal need of all of us. It is, it is, and 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 I'm not sure necessarily. Um, how you accomplish that every day, not that you need to every day, but yeah, I mean, you know, you need to surround yourself with, with good people who, who care about you in, in all different capacities and, and communicating for, for me at least is, 
is is a big part of me staying sober. So in your during your Wall Street career, you made heaps of money. You went through a catastrophic event or series of events that pulled you out of that milieu temporarily, it sounds like, because you're in it again, but in a very different way. Um, you went on to, to, to write the story, to tell the story. You also have a daughter yes. and a, a, a partner or ex-partner. Yes, ex. Talk a little bit about the effect of your journey on your role as a father, as a mentor, as, as a boyfriend slash partner, and now in its new form. Sure. Um, so my daughter is now 11. And the first time I went to rehab, she was one. So she didn't really know any different. And then the second time she was four. And, you know, a a conversation was needed. Um, but she still didn't really kind of understand what was going on. And, and when I got back, uh, you know, mommy and daddy were not going to be living under the same roof. And, um, it was difficult. Um, you know, there was, there was definitely a few months where, uh, you know, things, things were not, uh, pretty. Um, and I, I understand, you know, uh, Jen, she, she, there was a lot of anger, um, from, from her side and, you know, her father died of a drug overdose when she was four. So, you know, this was, this was a touchy, touchy subject. And, um, you know, I, I just, knew that if if I stayed sober things were going to to eventually work themselves out and that's really kind of where I just tried to focus so you know there there were more down days than than up days but I just kept reminding myself I said if I stay sober um you know the likelihood of my daughter being in my life and 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 still liking me and and wanting me to be in her life is infinitely higher if I stay sober. You know, one of the mistakes I made from getting back from rehab the first time was my priorities were win Jen back, two, um, uh, learn how to be a father, three, get my career and big life back, four, regain the trust of my friends and family, and five, stay sober. And and you risk, you know, anything you put in front of your sobriety, that's what you risk losing. And so second time around, I said, look, sobriety has got to be a number one and being a father is number two. And, and, and it's worked out well. And, you know, today, um, I live two minutes from, from my daughter and her mom and her mom's boyfriend's house. Um, I see my daughter every day. Um, sometimes the four of us have dinner. I mean, it's completely normal, um, at least for us. And, uh, it's it, it it's just working, you know. You know, Jen and I definitely went through some tough times, um, but we 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 definitely came to a point where we just realized, no matter what, let's let's do what's best for Lola, and that's yeah. my daughter. And and I think that is the point of wanting to be that role model as a parent, you know, and leading by example. I mean, this is certainly, um, you know, I do a lot of addiction and trauma recovery work, and this is what I see every day with clients that come in and they have families and they, they worry about their own children's safety in the long run because it's in the DNA, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely crossed my mind, but you know, all I can really do is, you know, stay sober and be the best role model that I can. And so what does life look like today? You're not wheeling and dealing on wall street, but you get to kind of play one on TV (laughs) from the wings. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, no, I mean it's it's exciting. You know, I'm I'm living, you know, halfway out uh, on Long Island, and um, you know, there's days where I wish I was living in the city, but uh, I'm I'm getting to write every day. I'm getting to be creative every day. I'm um, a very present father. Uh, you know, one thing I I discovered when I got back from rehab the second time, you know, I had this giant hole in my soul that I had I had spent 15 years filling with drugs, sex, pornography, money, power, uh, houses, cars, you name it. And it never seemed to never seemed to fill the hole. And um, when I got back, uh, being in recovery and then starting to write, I actually started to 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 feel whole again. And, and so writing has been very instrumental in in, in in my recovery. No doubt. And it, I think it's part of the, the Holy Grail that Joseph Campbell talks about, you know, in the hero's journey. It's, you know, taking taking the learnings of the journey, bringing them home to the community or the tribe and sharing it because somebody else may benefit from it. Yeah, yeah. And and one thing that I've I've tried to do, whether it's, you know, writing the book I've and I'm in the middle of another book or you know, when I'm asked to speak or, you know, let's say coming on with you today, um, this, this woman, Mary Carr, you know, the queen of, uh, memoirs and especially addiction memoirs, uh, we've become friends and we were talking one day and she said, Tony, she goes, there's a reason a lot of people don't go to church. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, they don't like to be preached to. So I, I always try to just draw from my own experience and just let people know, you know, this, this is what happened to me and this is how I dealt with it versus, you know, Lisa, don't do this, don't do that. Because, yeah. you know, I, I personally start to tune out when, when people tell me what to do. Yeah. But telling your story, just, you know, it's like telling what happens, sharing the adventures and the misadventures are very inspiring to other people. You don't have to tell them what to do. People are right, pretty people right. are pretty smart. You know, they get it. They may not get it the first time, but eventually they get it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. So today you also speak to audiences. Oh, my goodness. We're, ha- we're getting the cue that we don't have much time, but I want to just talk about your public speaking because you talk to audiences all over the world about achieving happiness in balance not in, necessarily in spite of success, but in consort with success, because the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Yes. So, um, and, and I could talk all day about this too. Um, well, you'll come back, I hope. <laughs> I'll, sure, sure. I'll try to be quick. Um, uh, my entire life, um, I've kind of operated on this idea of if then. So when, when I was making $22,000 a year, I said, if I could just make $50,000 a year, then I'd be happy. If if I could get that girl, you know, then then everything would be all right. If I got that promotion, then I'd have a career. Well, when I when I made two million dollars, I was saying if I could just make three million dollars, everything would be okay. And and so what I learned was over time that happiness should not be a goal. It's it's a terrible terrible goal. And um, you know, I, I see happiness more as a lifestyle. Um. And because if you put a a goal, meaning whether getting a job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a certain amount of money and attach that to happiness, well, when you get it, it's eventually going to wear off. And um, I'll just I'll, I'll tell you one quick, short anecdote. Um, 
it was 2011 and I'm in my one bedroom apartment in Long Island City and I had just gotten a big book deal from Random House. Jen and I were starting to get along, got through family court. I got uh, joint custody. I was seeing and talking to my daughter every day. All of my amends had gone flawlessly. I had a million reasons to be happy and I was sitting there and I and I wasn't happy and 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 I'm like something's wrong with me because if if I'm not happy now I'll never be happy and so I went to the computer and I Google searched the pursuit of happiness because I wanted to know what it meant in 1776 and what I discovered was back then happiness meant honor integrity how you live your life and and so what 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 I decided was that happiness was no longer my goal. Um, my only goal was serenity because I believed I could sustain some type of some level of serenity every day. No matter what happened in my life, I could I sustain some type of serenity. Happiness, I couldn't because, you know, if I didn't get the job or if I didn't get the girl or, or whatever. Um, and but the but the irony of all of it is on the on the since the day I stopped chasing happy and decided I wasn't even going to try. Um, it's the most happy I've, I've, I've ever been in my entire life. So it's, boom. uh, boom, there it is. Right. Yep. <laughs> Turney, thank you so much. We've been talking with Turney Duff. The book is the buy side, a wall street traders tale of spectacular excess to learn more. Please visit turneyduff.com. You can find him on Twitter at Turney Duff and on Facebook, Turney Duff right stuff. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Gabor Mate and Turney Duff, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.